Hello, and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, I am going to talk today about the final 100 pages or so of Odalisque by Neil Stevenson. That's the third book of the Baroque cycle. Uh, so we're, we're really making our way through this series um, with pretty good time. I hope to have this all recorded and done before I leave uh, the United States. I'm finally going to get to go back to Taiwan, which is really exciting. Um, so I'm going to be uh, kind of going through these recordings uh, as quickly as possible um, to so I don't have to carry these big heavy three these three big heavy books with me to Taiwan. Um, anyways, um, so if you're just joining me, you probably want to go back to listen to my previous thoughts about this series. I'm not going to do too much of a recap, um, but. Um, basically, the final 100 pages or so of Odalisque uh, wraps up, at least for the time being, uh, the stories of Eliza uh, in the Versailles court. She'll eventually get back there, but uh, under various different circumstances. And, uh, and the, the story of Daniel and his kind of political entanglement with James II and the Glorious Revolution and all that. So... A lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening at the end of this book, um, but it's all kind of pre preparatory to can the confusion, which even has like more going on. I mean, that's it's. I mean, literally, he has to intertwine two different books to keep the narrative straight because there's so much going on. And the chronology is so important in that one, um, but I'm looking forward to getting to that book. So let me, uh, as quickly as possible, tell you my overall thoughts of the end of of Odalisque. Um, so we start the first, actually, I say I got about hundred pages left, about 50 of those pages are, is a report by Bonaventure Rosignol to the King Louis XIV. Uh, now this is a bit of a trick. Um, we're told at the end of this section, a little bit later that this, there's like necessary information that's kind of missing from this report. Um, sound sense. Yeah, I mean, no reason to talk about spoilers here uh, or to warn you about spoilers, I think. Um, essentially, Eliza and Rosignol, who's a real person, by the way, or was a real person. He was the cryptanalyst for Louis XIV, um, kind of a, a natural philosopher figure who fits into the French court the way, you know, Daniel and Huygens and Leibniz uh, relate with, with Eliza. We understand why Eliza's interested in him, attracted to him. Basically, it's a it's an intellectual relationship. Or maybe Wilkins, he kind of fits in the, the role. Wilkins is sort of the crypt, cryptographer of England. Leibniz, the cryptologist in Germany, and Rosignol for France. Um, Anyways, uh, he's he writes this report to Louis the Fourteenth, with basically outs Eliza as a as a spy for William of Orange. Um, and why do this? Well, they had become lovers. That he doesn't mention this in the report, obviously, but they had become lovers while Eliza was in the Rhineland, basically spying on military trooping movements and things for William of Orange, and she basically got into trouble there. Uh, with those different armies and, and, and you know, her life was at risk. So Rosignol, who was kind of privy to a lot of her communications through, because he reads every letter that comes in and out of Versailles, uh, basically leaving France, it seems. It seems like a really busy job, but uh, he reads all these letters, so he kind of knew where Eliza was, and he, he rescues her, right? And they sleep together. 
And to cover this up, I guess, she seduces Etienne Dakashan uh, the next day. So they have a child. Now, it's it's kind of presumed it's Rosignol's child. But I don't know how anyone could know that. Maybe the face when he was born or whatever. But anyways, Eliza is going to end this book with a child. That's ostensibly Etienne's. I mean, officially sort of the bastard child of Etienne Dakashan. But it seems realistically a product of in reality, a product of the Eliza Rosignol relationship, but instead, I'm, I'm not sure how they could know that. This is there's no Mori Povich here to to test the, the the DNA, I guess. So, anyways, that's sort of the story we get. Um, now, Rosignol has to expose Eliza a bit because that's his job, and he's kind of trying to protect her. If you know, if without the seduction of Etienne Darkashan and the baby. This uh, this probably would have led to Eliza's death, it seems, right? Basically, Rosignol is, in a sense, trying to save her life by outing her as the spy for William of Orange. In a way, kind of liberating her from William of Orange, too, right? Once she's exposed, she really can't play that role as spy for William of Orange. So it frees her from William of Orange, future king of England. Um, so there's multiple reasons why he seems to be doing this. Um, so this first 50 pages is all a suspect narration. There's, there's, I'm not sure how much of this you can actually believe um, because it is a, a report to the king. Obviously, there's got to be some truth to it because he's got to, you know, he's got a job in the French court. But he's he leaves out a lot of details. He leaves out, he says, I'm leaving out troop movements and boring stuff like that, stuff that was for William of Orange, but you don't really need to know it. But he also leaves out his relationship with Liza, things like that. So. The letter, it's, it's really fun to read because it's, it's in this overly polite tone, you know, where, you know, he'll say things like, you obviously know this, but let me explain anyways. You know, this is a just a trick of politeness, right? You know, if you're ever given a talk, you say, like, as we all know, you know, the American Revolution was in 1770. It began in 1775. You say something like that. You know, it, it, it presumes the, the understanding of the audience in a, in a polite way, but it also provides information that's necessary. So he's constantly writing like that. Um, um, but anyways, he starts out with an introduction a little bit to his background, which I don't know he would really need, but um, the king, I mean, wouldn't need. But it, it serves us in a way as introduction to this character, Rosignol, who I think is the first time we ever run into him just through these letters. So he says, basically, I knew something was suspicious about this Eliza character because she was writing these really long letters to Leibniz about hair and clothing and court politics, stuff Leibniz wouldn't be interested in. Uh, and she was writing these letters to DeVoe, uh, obviously, because that was her job, right, officially. Um, I mean, she was a governess, I guess, and kind of a, an aide to different court women, and, and especially Sophie uh, Charlotta, Caroline. Sorry, Caroline. Princess... Uh... No, Lizoletta. Sorry, I keep confusing this. That, that Hanoverian line, it's, it's mixed in my head. Uh, but I, sorry about that. Um, Elizabeth Charlotta, Lizoletta. That should be easy to remember, Lizoletta. Uh, she's kind of like an aide, like a, you know, kind of a body servant of sorts to her. Um, we get more about her sexuality in the next book, too implied she's she's a lesbian um but 
which which Eliza seems open to. <laughs> um, so, anyways, he goes over this 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 background to her, and of course, now Eliza is Countess de la Zure. She's been given a, a title in the French court, so that also protects her in a way, not fully, but it protects her in a way. But more importantly, her relationship with Etienne Dacachon protects her, um, and Rosignol is going to be able to protect her too. Not very much. It's going to have its limits, as we'll see in the next book. But anyways, this is a fascinating section, I think, this whole this letter, because it's it's letters within letters and report. It's like a big fat report that Rosignol gives to to Louis the 14th. So anyways, um, in here are letters uh, that Eliza wrote to uh, uh, to DeVoe, letters from DeVoe to uh, to Rosignol, like DeVoe's warning Rosignol about Eliza. DeVoe has kind of lost his patience with her and starts to think she is a spy. Uh, so that kind of sets this up. Um, and then he goes over and explains how he was able to, to encrypt her, his let, her letters. Um, now here's where we can doubt the narration a little bit. Like, for instance, I mean, the fact that he figured out the Leibniz cipher, you know, was it that, because they were together, so she, Eliza could have just explained it to Rosignol. Or Rosignol figured it out himself. Um, it's not clear, but especially with the 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 diary. So Eliza writes a journal during her kind of voyages in the Rhineland, where she's spying for um, William of Orange, being the sort of double agent. And Rosignol explains in quite a lot of detail how he decrypted this journal. Now, how this journal was written was with cross stitch, right? Um, so the cross stitch. You know, you can have the left over, uh, on top or the right on top, right? If you're doing a cross stitch. And so you have a binary system. And so each stitch could be one letter, right? And then you got a binary uh, number. You know, gotta, you got where you got a, a, a... You get an Arabic numeral, right? From a certain number of binary digits. And then this was associated with a rune in the Tagunian language. So we learn a little bit about Tagunian language. I think this must have been in Cryptonomicon. I don't really remember. It's been so long since I read that one. But Tagumian is more like a, it's like runist based. It's like an old Norse language. It's kind of like Chinese in that it's, it's sort of pictographic where each character image represents a, an idea or a concept instead of a sound like in the, in the alphabetic, alphabetic languages. Um, so there's like 30,000 runes in Tagunian, and so you can create a binary number that associates with a rune. Um, this must have took them. This must, so I, I have doubt here. I've she does mention Eliza does mention her journal, but I I don't know. I doubt how anyone could have written this. I mean, literally sewing. It must have been many binary digits to create one rune. He says says well, it's kind of a pithy language, so that. Is maybe his uh, Neil Stevenson's pirouette around here. Plus, this journal's written in August. This report, August 1688, this report is coming to the king in November. Yeah, November 1688. So basically, once he got this thing, he only had a, literally weeks to translate it. I think he must have had Eliza's help, or this is all just a facade they put up as part of this report. Um, Anyways, I have doubts. It, it, it seems unrealistic that even someone as brilliant as Rosignol could have figured this out. But anyways, 
because partially he had to like send it to some Tagumian expert to translate from Tagumian to French. Uh, so it could be read by the king of France and, and him. So, um, or he sends it to, to he goes to Edouard de Jax, who is into all kinds of weird shit. And he sends it to some Jesuit in Dublin who's, who's an expert on Tagumian. He translates it. And altogether, it's like 40,000 characters or something, uh, which completes this, this, this letter. Um, so suspend your disbelief if you want. I, I, I kind of do um, here. But it's a wild cipher. It's pretty amazing. Um, could, I think Stevenson just wanted this type of cipher. <laughs> and he wanted to use Tagumian as, that, as, that, as, as its own um, cipher, right? And the, which is how it's used in Cryptonomicon, right? It's kind of like the Navajo uh, code, code talkers. So here it's, it's being used in the same sort of way. So anyways, then we get Eliza's journals from her adventures in the Rhineland. And a lot of it's just about her, her journeys throughout the Rhineland. It's not particularly that interesting stuff. I think what's more interesting in the section is the cipher itself and her relationship with Rosignol and, and this kind of trying to pull one over on the, on the King of France, this kind of deep intrigue stuff. But basically, she gets into trouble... Uh, in the in the Rhineland because of these different armies. This is right at the beginning of the War of the League of Augsburg, right? Where the French invade Germany in order to basically secure the Rhineland, defeat the Dutch and all that. And this eventually becomes a world war with the, with the Glorious Revolution, right? But he skips over parts. He'll, he'll write things like, oh, this part is just about troop movements. You, you know, you obviously know where your armies are. I don't need to repeat it. This was information for William of Orange. Uh, let me move on. But he was actually skipping over like parts of his own rescue of Eliza, how he went into the Rhineland and actually rescued her, and and eventually, uh, you know, had a relationship with her, right, and presumably impregnated her. Although the pregnancy thing, I don't know. I'm, I, I mean, publicly, it's it's kind of a bastard of Dakashan, and then she has to do a kind of a trick where she says, yeah, that's uh, in an orphanage and I adopted a baby at the same time. So it, it becomes, she's able to have her kid with her. Um, Jean-Jacques, named after Jack in part. But it's, you know, it's like an orphan she's taking care of instead of her own kid, right? Because, you know, he had to protect the kid from, from others. Now, how well protected? Not well, well protected, as it turns out, as we'll see in the next book. But anyway, she meets Etienne Dakashan, and she talks about how she was immediately kind of wooed by him. And he's got, remember, his hand was cut off by Jack way back at the end of book two. And so he's got this, like, robot arm with a dildo middle finger. I don't know if it's interchangeable. Like, does he have a hand that he can use for battle? Does he have another hand for, like, when he needs the dildo? And it's a vibrator. Um, it's got, like, a spring-loaded vibrator that he can twist, and then it, it vibrates. And she gives all the details about this, this, this vibrator hand. Like, the middle finger of this is, is like, as big as a regular phallus. So it's, it's a wild hand. He must have, like, interchangeable hands that he, he uses for different functions because I don't think he'd walk around with this penis hand. But, you know, especially not the politest man in Paris. 
So, anyways, we get the whole story about her adventures in the Rhineland. Uh, the latter, the report ends with Rosignol saying, "Now you know, she was a spy for William of Orange. That much is clear. But we really can't touch her because she's now a countess. She's here's how he writes it." Um, from your majesty's many excellent sources in England, your majesty will know that the Prince of Orange is now there commanding an army made up not only of Dutchmen, but of the English and Scottish regiments that were stationed up on Dutch soil by treaty. Um, so this is the Glorious Revolution, which we'll see about details on in the next part of the book. Uh, Huguenot scum who filtered up from France, mercenaries and freebooters from Scandinavia, and Prussians who had lent their cause by Sophie Charlotta, the daughter of the cursed Hanoverian bitch Sophie. Lizoletta, of course, is, is not condemned because she's the, the sister-in-law of the king. All of this seems to prove that Europe is a chessboard. Even your majesty cannot gain, say, the Rhineland without sacrificing, say, England. Likewise, whatever Sophie and William may gain from their ceaseless machinations, they'll have to pay for in the end. As for the Countess de Lazure, why the new king of England might make her Duchess of Tagum. But in return, your majesty will no doubt see to it that her sacrifice is commensurate. So he's saying, you know, if she is uplifted by the new king of England, then you have control over her and can punish her. But that's not going to happen, right? Um, because Rosalind is not going to let it. The letter ends, uh, Monsieur le Comte de Vaux has redoubled his surveillance of the Countess in The Hague. He has received assurances from the, the laundresses who work at the House of Huygens that she has not bled a single drop of menstrual blood in the nearly two months since she's been there. She is pregnant with a bastard of Arcachon. She is therefore now part of the family of France, of which Your Majesty is the patriarch, and it is, and it is become a family matter. However, feigning any further meddling. So basically, she's she's protected from other in other ways too. Financial interests of the French aristocracy in the Hague, uh, her countess role, and now that she's bearing the child of 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 the duke, oh well, of the grandchild of the duke. Great section, though. A lot of fun. I think it's the best part of this is that 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 cross-stitching cipher, um, which I wonder if anyone's actually done something like that. I just she she kind of you can explain away that she spends a lot of this time on on carts, so she's able to just sort of sew. But there's like thirty thousand Tagumian runes, and each one would be associated with you know this binaries that she's writing. You'd need like a Tagumian encyclopedia dictionary or something to to even think about doing that. Anyways, she's smart. Eliza's smart. We know it. We know it. I just I just have reasons to doubt that whole part of the story, um, or at least how it was translated. I think maybe it's more plausible that he was somehow in the know of this, and this is all being produced for the king's benefit because he has to you know, know something because DeVoe is going to out her anyways. So this is Rosignol sort of covering for her. You don't know that. It does, when you first read it, it does just seem like Rosignol is the cryptandals to figure this out and, and is telling the king. All right. Next, we move to Sherness, England, um, on December 11th, 1688. Um, we got a quote from Daniel about the changing continents of the king. Um, of course, that's referring here to James II, who has now uh, been essentially overthrown by uh, William of Orange, right? Married to to Mary Stuart, um, able to, to kind of get the claim of the throne through that. Um, so this scene is 
Uh, this is after he's been ex he escapes from the tower from uh, by Bob Shafto. Bob Shafto helps uh, Daniel escape the tower. Unfortunately, I didn't take as careful notes in this section that I would have. There's some nice stuff here where basically Bob recruits him into his fight against the Earl of Upnor, um, specifically, basically saying, I rescue you from the Tower of London. And now in the chaos, because there's mobs in the street, tearing down all the James II stuff, burning down buildings and all that, the normal popular mob activity. And you have the troops on the field and you have people fleeing and burning documents. It's, it's kind of a chaotic scene. Um, but Bob is able to kind of whisk Daniel away in all of this um, and actually imprisoned the people that are going to kill Daniel. The people Jeffrey sent. Jeffrey ends up in the Tower of London in, 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 instead. So um, so then they, they come and meet John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough. And John Churchill uh, also recruits him into the fight against the Earl of Upnor, but on different ground, basically saying we have a shared enemy here uh, and that's alchemy and it's the kind of the cult of alchemists. And at, at first, at this point in the story, you might think, what's the big deal with these alchemists? I mean, it's not just, it's just, you know, Enoch Root is a weirdo from the Bible, lived for thousands of years. You have uh, Isaac Newton playing around with alchemy, which of course is maybe a concern to some, but alchemy was just like a, a sub-branch of science, right? But in the second book and the third book, you find out, you know, this is really where the supernatural elements of the book come in because you got magic gold, uh, which is kind of an alchemical thing. You have, uh, you find out Lothar von Heckelhaber, the German banker who was eventually involved in, you know, they first talk about him back in Leipzig in the second book. Uh, De Jex, it, it, Dakoshan, all these people are involved in 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 kind of weird alchemy things. Uh, so it is like a it's presented more as like a secret conspiracy, at least in John Churchill's mind, it's something that has to be crushed. And Daniel agrees to help. He says, this puts us in the same bolt boat. Now they say there's no honor among thieves. I wouldn't know, but perhaps there may be a kind of honor among traitors. If I'm a traitor, I'm an honorable one. My conscience is clear, if not my reputation. So now I'm holding my hand out to you, John Churchill, and you might stand there eyeing it as long as you may, as you please. But if you would care to stand behind me and shore me up as I look into this question of alchemy, I should like it very much if you took that hand in yours and shook it as a gentleman. For as you have noticed, the esoteric brotherhood is powerful and I cannot work against it without a brotherhood of sorts to stand with me. So they work into this agreement to fight against the alchemy tradition. Now, there's been some mentioning in Odalisque because there's like a 10-year jump or seven-year jump, something like that, in the character of, of Daniel Waterhouse. Is it that much? No, it might even be. I think it's almost a full. Yeah, it's about it's, maybe it's about seven, eight years when Odalisque begins. But by the end, we're talking about like a 10-year gap from the end of Quicksilver. And Daniel has, in the meantime, had this break with Newton. And basically involved Daniel burning a bunch of alchemical texts and documents. Um, and this, this he did on principle. He said, this is bad science. It's, it's offensive. It's corrupting to our craft. It's corrupting to the royal society. We can't have it. So he actually takes the step to try to break, trying to, I guess, detox Al Newton from alchemy. And it blows up. It just becomes a break between them. So anyways, we, we shift then to 
the scene with uh, with Daniel going to the Earl of Upnor's house. Now we know the Earl of Upnor is into alchemy too. He's part of this esoteric brotherhood of alchemists. He's got. We we knew this from way back in the first book when Upnor sent Newton this ancient tomb, tome, ancient tome of alchemical writing, something maybe from the Middle Ages. It's it's like kind of like he gives him the Necronomicon or something weird like that. Maybe that's what it was. I don't think it ever has a. It, I think it maybe did have a title, so it's not the Necronomicon, but it's like that. It's just, it's akin to that kind of thing. So they go there and they're burning all these books. So Isaac Newton's there, Faccio's there. Faccio's in, you know, he seems to be a good natural philosopher, but he's open to alchemy and he's in this kind of Newton circle by this point. He's kind of built up some trust of Newton. Upnor's there, so it's a, it's kind of he's Daniel's going into the lion's den. At this point, in fulfillment of his essentially contract with, with John Churchill, um, I think that's how we should read it. Uh, in fact, it's you know this whole section begins with a with a quote from the Book of Daniel, right? So he is sort of going in the lion's den at this point, full of enemies. Faccio may be more neutral, but pretty much full of enemies. Even Enoch Root is there, and they're burning books. They're before this transition, but they're shifting through them. They're saving what's important and hiding it away and burning stuff that aren't so important. And Newton kind of freaks, freaks out saying, we can't have alchemical writings and Daniel and fire in the same room together. It just doesn't work. Quote, in this house, Daniel, a vast repository of alchemical lore has accumulated. Nearly all of it is garbled nonsense. Some of it's true wisdom. Secrets that ought rightfully be kept secrets from them out whose hands they would be dangerous. Our task is to sort out one from the other and burn what is useless and see to it that what is good and true is distributed to libraries and laboratories of the adept. It is difficult for me to see how you could be of any use in this since... You believe that all of it is nonsense and have a well-established history of incendiary behavior in the presence of such writings. So that's a reference to a 1677 uh, burning of some of these alchemical texts. Um, so he has various conversations with people. The most brutal actually is with Enoch Root, where Daniel basically comes out and says, like, who the hell are you? Uh, now, they be, you have this sort of very strange friendship between the two. At the beginning of Quicksilver, when he, when this is in 16, 1713, when Daniel's in Boston, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's friendship. It's more Root is like a wizard coming in and saying, "You have to go on your quest now, um, the final quest of your life." Um, but they they do seem fairly friendly there. Here they're not friendly at all, and it's basically because Newton or Daniel, I mean, sees Enoch Root as a bad influence on. Danny, uh, oh, I keep confusing these names. A bad influence on Newton, and of course, key to this alchemical conspiracy. And, and he just kind of asks, "Who the hell are you?" And and you know, who is he? He's, he's essentially Enoch from the Bible, right? If Enoch's the one of the ancestors of Noah who walked with God instead of dying. At least that's what the Bible says. So Stevenson kind of makes this character the this wandering uh, uh, alchemist, right? You can't even say wandering Jew in that case. It's it's even before there's the covenant, right, with Abraham. And Daniel here makes a great statement about modern science and, and why alchemy can't fit. He says this, But I say to you, and you as well, Mr. Locke, yeah, John Locke's here too, um, 
as I came in here, I saw a map lately taken from this house burning in the f fire. The map was empty for it depicted the ocean, most likely a part where no man had ever been. A few lines of latitude were ruled across that vellum void and some legendary islands drawn in with great authority. And where the map maker could not restrain himself, he drew fantastical monsters. That map to me is alchemy. It is good that it's burnt. It's fitting that it burnt tonight in the eve of revolution and that I will be bold as to call my life's work. In a few years, Mr. Hook will learn to make a proper chronometer, finishing what Mr. Huygens began 30 years ago. And then the Royal Society will draw maps with lines of longitude as well as latitude, giving us a grid, what we will call a Cartesian grid, though it was not his idea. And where there'll be islands, we'll rightly draw them. And where there are none, we'll draw none, nor dragons nor sea monsters. That will be the end of alchemy. So you're saying alchemy is essentially drawing in monsters in your, in your map of the sea. Um, we got a reference to the longitude question, which will come in and out of the story at various points. Um, that's just a, you know, something hard to figure out, right? And there was a channel and a race to try to find the solution to the longitude problem. Um, but he makes his stand, and he connects this to the glorious revolution and the scientific revolution, right? So early in Quicksilver, Enoch Root says, you got to protect your revolution, right? And that revolution both is the revolution of of, I got the political revolution he's advocating for here, and the more importantly, perhaps the scientific revolution, right? So I think going back to Quicksilver, that statement, defend your revolution, I think it's also referring to the political revolution. And Daniel sees them, you know, tied together here. Great section, a really great section. And you just see how contentious the relationship is between Newton and Daniel at this point. They're basically not on speaking terms. And this, and this wonderful moment, it's, it's like, it's not, there's no guns and swords and things, it's, but it is, there's no lions, but it is Daniel going into the lion's den, right? Filled with his enemies, including the Earl of Upnor. So um, a great Daniel moment there. But he's not Bob Shafto. He's not John Churchill. He can only stand up to them in terms of ideas and words and, and values. He's not going to like murder all those people or something as stupid as that. Uh, that's, that's not his role here his role is to defend in intellectually good science against alchemy and then we have a after that a, a meeting again between uh, bob shafto and daniel waterhouse and they talk a little bit about the fate of jeffries um oh hey, jeffries i actually run into jeffries that's right um and then he's drawing dragged off to the, to the tower eventually so that's that's kind of the I think that's the end of our scenes about the uh, on the like that that moment of the glorious revolution. Most of the action of the glorious revolution is taking place off stage, but obviously we know William comes to to England with his army, and through his marriage to Mary, is able to uh, take the throne. And James II flees in disguise. He eventually ends up trying to fight for his crown back with the help of the French in the auspices of the Nine Years' War. That will all be discussed in, in the confusion. So then we uh, we flip back to Eliza. We're getting really towards the end of this thick book. We're almost done with volume one. Uh, we flip to a letter from Leibniz to Eliza, um, where he's basically in Venice at the time, and he's talking mostly about the politics of the, the those Hanoverians, of of Caroline and and Lizzoletta and Sophie and all those. And he gives this wonderful description of Venice, 
we're even discussing like canal rage like we have road rage because the roads are too crowded he, there's he's saying in venice there's canal rage because the canals are too crowded but we get a little of a window into another part of europe that we haven't haven't seen yet what we're, we learn from this essentially is that sophie really is ambitious quote as and for sophie she will never be satisfied with germany alone her uncle was king of england and she'll be its queen did you know she speaks perfect english english so here I am far away from home trying to track down every last one of her husband's ancestors down to the Gulfs and the Giblins. I think what, so that's what he's doing. He's involved in this genealogical research for Sophie because Sophie's trying to prop up her eventual claim to the throne of England. He does add a little bit on natural philosophy here too, where he says, you know, he already wrote to Daniel, telling Daniel in kind of detailed terms why he opposes Newton's system in, as laid out in Principia Mathematica. But he says here, I am so annoyed by Newton's mystical approach to force that I'm developing a new discipline to study that subject alone. I'm thinking of calling it dynamics, which derives from the Greek word for force. What do you think? End quote. Um, and of course, so he's asking Eliza for advice on whether he should use the term dynamics. And of course, that is what we call this study in physics is dynamics. Another reminder that like Leibniz's terminology and methods and uh, notations, all is what became, you know, what we study now when you study physics or, or mathematics. Now we got Eliza to Leibniz. That's a, a pretty long letter. Um, and, and Eliza says, I kind of like dynamics, but it kind of makes me think too much of dynasties and the political power. So another reminder that the science, the politics of science and the politics of the battlefield and the politics of money, they're all interacting in various ways here. So it's kind of a clever term uh, to refer to force. Um, now this is all ciphered. So the italic, like once again, the letters to Leibniz, the italics is the ciphered letter. And she confesses a whole lot here. So basically she tells the story of how she ended up having a, a relationship with Rosignol, ended up pregnant. So she talks about the childbirth and she actually says in the letter at first, like the child died, right? Because this is to protect the kid who would be named Jean-Jacques from political intrigues and things like that. What this means for Rosignol's kind of effort to use the baby as cover for Eliza, I'm not sure maybe i think eliza's protection runs a little bit deeper than just the baby and the the mother of the bastard of, of 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 etienne it must be somehow connected also with her connections in versailles and things like that but um she's not as we'll see later on she's not that well protected her money is maybe what's keeping her somewhat safe but she she fakes the death of this, this kid but in the ciphered message we, we she says no, the kid's alive, um, just hidden away in an orphanage. At the same time, she adopts this other kid. It's pretty easy to figure this out, it's, which is why I guess Jean-Jacques eventually gets captured because it doesn't take a brain surgeon to, to figure out the baby swap didn't really happen or the dead baby didn't happen. Anyways, um, she talks about her relationship with Rosignol and how they ended up having this affair. Um, and how they developed this scheme using this cryptographer's report to the king to protect Eliza in the court. 
So after saying all this, she says, when I got to The Hague, DeVoe became aware of the existence of that journal and prevailed upon the King of Tripton and the Annals to translate it, which he did, though he left out all the best parts, namely those passages in which he himself played a romantic hero. He could not make me out to be innocent, for DeVoe already knew too much, and too many Frenchmen had witnessed my deeds. Instead, Bonbon, that's Rosignol, contrived to tell the story in such a way as to make me the paramour of Etienne, a true breeding woman of his and his family dream, his family's dreams. So I guess that's really the, the cover. But yeah, obviously too many people knew and DeVoe was already really suspicious of Eliza. So some admittance that she's been up to no good had to be um, had to be established. But this does have the effect of freeing Eliza, at least from William of Orange, who maybe doesn't need Eliza quite as much because he's going to be king of England. He's got a bigger palette to work with. Um, and anyway, she's outed. So he should really can't serve him anymore but she might still have uses in france again as we'll see in the next next book her financial acumen is what's going to give her a, a role in france during this nine years war all right that's basically our story up to this point um we we, we the, the book ends october 1689 so about a year later Actually, these letters between Leibniz and Eliza are also about a year later, a year after the Glorious Revolution. But we return to England. Um, and good old Daniel Waterhouse. How old is he? Uh, 40-something? Uh, I think I should know. Yeah, like early 40s, late 30s. I think, yeah, something like that. But he's got this bladder stone, right? I guess I didn't mention it yet, but it, it came up in the previous episode. I mentioned it. He's got this bladder stone. He actually, when he moves, he can feel it bounce around in there, which is kind of kind of yucky, kind of creepy. But um, once again, we see Daniel's kind of courage and bravery when he does what Wilkins wouldn't, couldn't do. Uh, of course, Wilkins said, I got too much political stuff to deal with. I can't spend the time recovering from the surgery for the stone. But Daniel's going to do it. So Daniel's going to be cut for the stone. And so Peeps is there. So it starts out with this like goodbye party, a farewell party in which a lot of his friends from the Natural Society, Peeps is there. Um, Mr. Hook is there. A lot of people, they give the, the basically the going away party because the death rate for this kind of surgery is super high. Um, it's described in here, the process, if you wanted to know. Um, basically, they cut through the, the, the perineum right so under your balls they cut to get to the bladder and they remove the stone and this is before of course anesthesia and germ theory stuff like that and hook who's doing the surgery says you may bite down this if you will or may spit out and scream all you like this is bedlam and no one will object neither will anyone take heed or show mercy least of all robert hook for you know daniel i'm utterly lacking in the quality of mercy which is well, as it would render me perfectly incapable to carry out this operation. I told you a year ago in the tower that I would one day repay your friendship by giving you something, a pearl of great price. Now the time has come for me to make good on that promise. The only question left to answer is how much will that pearl weigh when I have washed your blood off it and let it clatter onto the pan of yonder scale. I'm sorry you woke up. I shall not insult you by suggesting that you should relax. Please do not go insane. I'll see you on the other side of the sticks. Uh, a wonderful hook moment 
because we we had that wonderful Hook moment between Daniel and Hook, and now Hook is repaying that friendship right by being brutal and and saving his life eventually. You don't really know it. I mean, it ends with the knife coming towards Daniel. Uh, a nice horrific ending of uh, our first volume of the Broke Cycle. Um, but there it is. So um, I think my judgment of Odalisk remains roughly the same. I think it's the most busy of of all the books and therefore maybe the one where maybe ideas aren't as developed as much as they could and then there's a, a lot of the text like 50 pages of this 300 page book is Rosignol's report to Louis the 14th a huge chunk of it is about Principia Mathematica a huge chunk of it is uh, what am I thinking uh, the fall of Batavia stuff or dinner parties um, but the fact that Stevenson is able to cram so much content into this book is, is impressive. But I get the sense he's trying to get to 1689 because that's when the story really seems to pick up. So, looking ahead, this is the wrong book. This is System of the World, Volume 3. I want Volume 2. All right, it's somewhere else. Anyways, Volume 2 of the Baroque Cycle has two books in it, Bonanza and the Junta, um, the Junto. Maybe Junkto. I kind of want to give it that accent, but I think the audiobook calls it the Junkto and Bonanza. Bonanza covers, both of these books cover, I want to say, 14 years of, of history from 1689 to, I think, 1703. And of course, the last volume will pick up in 1713 with uh, Daniel's arrival in London. Um, so we got a huge swath of the time, and, and it's all in two books. One book covers Jack's voyage from like being a galley slave literally around the world. So he returns all the way eventually to Europe from the Mediterranean. Um, and it involves magic gold, heists, pirates, battles at sea, um, battles on land, Jack becoming a, a king in India. Uh, it involves... Uh, uh, Enoch Root. It involves the Pacific tr galleon trade uh, between New Spain and, and East Asia. And Jack goes everywhere uh, in this, this voyage. And we got this wonderful group of comrades. Uh, there's 10 initially, his basically galley slave comrades, but there ends up being some others who join up, like Arlong, the Huguenot, who was enslaved earlier in the book. Jack meets up with him, uh, an Indian named uh, uh, Surrenderanat, I guess is how it's pronounced. And others join up. So I think there ends up being like 12 or 13 people in this cabal they form, which is, its mission is to steal fucking magic gold. They think they're stealing silver, but they end up stealing magic gold. And then they end up having to carry this gold around the world. There's pirate queens who steal the gold. It's a wonderful adventure. Maybe the high point of this series for many people. Then you have uh, the Eliza story in uh, Junkto. So a little bit on Daniel here, not that much. But basically Eliza is trying to survive in the continent after being outed as the spy for the William of Orange, having this kid, this Jean-Jacques, who she's carrying around as this orphan she adopted, but it's really her, her, her son, by Rosignol. Um, she get, becomes impoverished. She has to rebuild her income. Uh, in a weaker position. 
and we kind of get the brutal side of Eliza. And these two stories are intimately connected. That's the other thing to say about it. So because of that, he can't tell one than the other. He has to go back and forth between the two stories. So he divides them up. If you've read It, you know, the last part of It by Stephen King, there's flipping between time because uh, it's important to, to build to something without, you know, revealing things at the right time. That's kind of what he does here. So basically, because things will happen in the the junta, referring to things that happen in Bonanza, and if it's by the order he puts them in, it's more understandable, I guess, because he basically keeps them too chronological. So the book's called The Confusion, referring to the confusion of these two stories and maybe some other stuff too. But the the what else does the the junta deal with? A lot on finance, a lot of trade. Right, we get like two different windows on trade. One from the perspective of like the sailors and the galleys, and the other from the perspective of like the investors. So a lot of fun stuff in confusion. I've been doing this three episodes a book. Um, now the books in the confusion are a little bit longer than the books in Quicksilver and System of the World, but I'm still going to just break it up into six episodes. But I'll just go through the book as it's written. I'm not going to have some episodes on Bonanza and some on the other books. I'm going to just read through it. Um, but it's going to be a little bit more than 100 pages for each episode just because I'm going to try to break it up into six parts. So, you know, for two books, six, six episodes, just to kind of keep the, the system going, the system I developed. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, I'll So let me know what you thought of the first volume of, of The Broke Cycle. Um, is it your favorite? Is it? Is it not? Why? Why not? Uh, what about any of the themes I've talked about? Um, anyways, let me know what you think of this this text, this whole series up to this point. You can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail dot com, um, and I'll see you next time when we pick up the confusion. We start with Bonanza. We start with the story of Jack Shafto. Um, after three years, three or four years as a galley slave. Uh, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.